If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere in the pew around you. And 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 959 of that Bible. This morning we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. Paul is still dealing with disorder, but rather than introduce a new topic, he goes to the heart of disorder. He goes to something that must be at the heart of every church, love. He shows them what it looks like. He shows them how important it is. And so, we read together uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the whole chapter. This is what the Spirit says to us through the Apostle Paul. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Our Father, You who have loved us with an everlasting love, we ask for Your help now that we might understand what it is to love one another. Teach us by Your Spirit so that what we do not know, You will teach us. What we do not do, You will cause us to do. What we do not have, You will give us. What we are not, You will make us. And we ask it all For the sake and in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, at 
toward the beginning, I, as we prayed our pastoral prayer, I, we prayed about our audiovisual team and that they never come into the spotlight until something is going wrong, like the feedback that seems to be happening in this microphone. So I'm hoping that someone will fix that fairly quickly. Although it seems the whole audiovisual team has abandoned the sound booth. So, <laughs> look, this is life. This is life right here. This is real life where the rubber meets the road. Um, but uh, when we, several years ago, I was uh, pastoring a church. The only other church I've ever served as pastor um, was in Nashville, Tennessee. And just about every Sunday morning, uh, on the way from our apartment to the church building, I would stop at Starbucks uh, because Sundays were extremely long in those days. I won't go into why they were so long, but they were extremely long, and as much caffeine as I could get in me at the beginning of the day would probably help me through the day. But it was there at that Starbucks that I met a barista whose name was Brad. And over time, I learned that Brad uh, loved to read. And he loved philosophy. He loved the classics. He loved Plato. He loved Aristotle. And so, in time, we would, we would have these short but meaningful conversations about ethics or about virtue or about the nature of the soul or about truth. And so, I just came to make it my routine that when I walked in, I would ask Brad if he was working that day, so what are you reading? And I remember one day going in and asking him what he was reading, and he didn't answer me. He said that he had been out on a date the previous night with a girl that he'd been out with several times. And because he'd been out with her several times, it got him to thinking about love. And whenever Brad thinks about something, he goes to reading about something. So he began to read various philosophers about love. But he was not satisfied with anyone's understanding of what love was. And so that morning he looked at me and he said, how can we know when something is love? Now that's a good question, isn't it? That's not just a good question when you've got out on a few dates. That's a good question for all of us. And so if we can, I want to leave Brad making my latte there in Starbucks for a while, and let's go to the Bible. Now, as you know, there are plenty of things in the Bible that are controversial, things that if you believe them, if you speak about them, they, you will find immediate opposition in your workplace or maybe at your family reunions or maybe over the fence with your neighbors. But one of the things that you may never find is offensive, is if you were to say, you know, I think the world needs love. I actually think Christians need to be more loving. You won't find opposition to that, will you? Because it's one of the chief complaints many people have. And it's actually what Paul is driving at in this chapter. He's saying to us that Christians must be committed to love in the church. Christians must be committed to love in the church. And so this morning, we want to listen to Paul, not so that we can examine others, you see. 
The issue of love is one in which we are most naturally inclined to begin to look around us to see if the other people around us are love, loving. But actually, Paul's not writing to the Corinthians so that they'll think about all the other churches to see if they are loving. He's writing to them so they will hear these words and say, are we loving? Am I loving? Christians must be committed to love in the church. Why? Well, the first reason is that love is crucial in the church. Love is crucial in the church. In the New Testament, there are around 50 mentions of the need for Christians to love other human beings, whether they be enemies or neighbors or loving one another within the church. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, all who have been loved by God must love others. But what is it? What is this love that Paul is talking about? Well, it's not the love of friendship. Certainly, we ought to be friendly people, but it's not the love of friendship. It's also not romantic love. The Greek word, as many of you will know, is agape. It is the lo a love that reflects God's love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a love that denies itself. It's a love that sacrifices itself. It's a love that humbles itself in order to serve others, in order to do good to others. And you know, it's not a love that's deserved, and it's not a love that's earned. You see, we ought not have this idea that uh, if you meet certain conditions, then I will love you. Aren't you glad that's not what God says of you? Because if God said that of you, and God said that of me, we'd never be loved by Him, because we could never meet the conditions. But this love for others is not actually based on whether you meet my conditions, whether you meet my standards, whether I think you're worthy of it. The Bible tells us we love because God first loved us. That's why we love. And so this agape love is a love we give because it is the love we have received in Jesus Christ. And Paul says it is crucial. Listen to verses 1 to 3 again. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain Nothing. You see, it's actually possible to have a lot of good things in the church, isn't it? It's possible to have very faithful teaching in the church. It's possible to have lots of spiritual gifts present in the church. It's possible to have people with exemplary faith. It's people buzzing about, serving in all manner of ways. It's, it's possible for someone to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to be like Daniel's friends. This world is going to throw me in the furnace before I ever deny the faith. It's possible to have all of that in a church, and it's wonderful to have all of that in a church. 
But if love is absent, it's meaningless. The great thundering teaching and the great buzzing of service becomes fingernails on a chalkboard. I don't know if you've ever stood in the waves of the ocean when the tide was coming in and tried to hold a conversation, but it's impossible. Nobody can hear you. You're talking like this, and it... Because the waves are stirred up. They're roaring. And Paul is essentially saying, lovelessness in a church will roar with such volume that no one will ever hear your precious speaking in tongues. No one will ever hear your prophecy. It will blind people to your faith. Have you ever thought about the fact that, that lovelessness in our own individual lives may be silencing our witness with others? You say, I don't, I don't know what's wrong. I've been going at this guy at work for weeks. I've been telling him the right thing over and over and over and over again. I've been banging my head against the wall, and I can't figure out why he won't just come to grips with the truth and come to Christ. Is it possible that while you've been banging your head against the wall, your lack of love is banging a cymbal so that he can't even hear you? He can't even make out the words that you're saying. It's a helpful thing to think about. And to the Corinthians, love is not as crucial as spiritual gifts. This is the problem. The speaking in tongues, the prophecy, the understanding, the knowledge, all these things that are listed in verses 1 to 3 are also found in chapter 12. And the Corinthians are obsessed with gifts. They are particularly obsessed with gifts that will put you in the spotlight. That will stir you up to some kind of ecstasy where you just feel like I'm having such a spiritual experience. And listen, we think this is far from us today, but it's not far from us. But it's not usually speaking in tongues people are thinking of. They usually come into a place like this thinking, oh, will the music stir me into such ecstasy that I feel like I'm really connecting with God. what did you not like about the church? Well, I just the music didn't really get me going, you know? I wasn't feeling it. Oh, we were singing about the Lord. We were singing these wonderful hymns of the faith. We were, we were singing about the Lord Jesus Christ and the atonement and all those things, but I just wasn't feeling it. You know what I mean? I mean, I just wasn't feeling it. This is the kind of thing that people would be saying in Corinth. We're just not feeling it unless we can get some tongues up in here. And so some Christians are feeling superior. They're looking at other people and saying, I have no need of you. I've got this gift. And there are others who are feeling inferior. Well, if I don't have that gift, I'm not even sure I belong in this church. In other words, what really matters to the Corinthians is not what really matters to God. The church may be missing many spiritual gifts. It may be missing specialized ministry. Oh, you don't don't have a ministry to single lawyers? 
You do, I, must, I need to go somewhere else then. You, you don't have a, a special ministry to electricians who are reaching retirement? I, I probably should just move on then. We may be missing all kinds of things. We may be missing certain programming. We may be missing a particular kind of music. Lots and lots and lots of things that are externals may be missing in a local church. Do you know what cannot go missing? Love. Love cannot go missing. D.L. Moody tells the story of a boy who's going to a Sunday school in Chicago. And uh, there comes a day when his family moves across town. But this little boy makes the long trek every Sunday to go across town and go to, the Sunday, to, the, to, to, to his same Sunday school. And one of his friends stops him one day and says, Now, now wait a second. Why, why would you walk all the way over there for Sunday school? There are plenty of good Sunday schools right in your neighborhood. And the boy says, Well, not for me. And when his friend asked why, he said, because they love a fella over there. They love a fella over there. Friends, that needs to be said in every local church. That needs to be said of this church. I, I actually couldn't possibly care less about Yelp reviews and stars on Google and all of those things. But what must be said of you and of me and of us collectively, they love a fellow over there. Love is crucial, and that is the first reason why we must be committed to love in the church. The second reason is that love is absent from the church. That's what's going on in Corinth. Now, Paul doesn't say that directly. You'll think that somehow I'm pulling this out of the air. You really have to read whole pieces of literature in order to understand the parts. But in verses 4 to 7, Paul actually confronts their lovelessness by giving them a description of love, a description that should lead to conviction. Let's look at it. First, seeing what love is. What love is. Love is patient and kind. That's what it says at the beginning of verse 4. Patience is an attitude of endurance. Not endurance with circumstances so much, but endurance with people. Because, you know, the people aren't what I'd really like. I'd really like to be part of a church where we're all expert systematic theologians where we're all this, where I just need more of that, I need more of this. And I'm just, uh, th this relationship, he, he's, he's not really as spiritually mature as I'd like him to be. He's not, you're not growing as much as I, I'd like you to be. Well, when that's the case, do you know what love is? Patient. Patience remembers that spiritual growth is a process. Patience trusts the Lord's timing. Patience is one of the greatest gifts you can give to somebody else. You've been patient with me. 
Just recently, I preached on Mark 2 in a completely different setting. And as I was preparing to preach on Mark 2, the story of uh, the paralytic, you know, whose friends bring him to Jesus, as I was preparing to, to, uh, to, to preach that in that setting, I went back to look at my notes from a previous time. The last time I preached it was in fall of 2009 because the Gospel of Mark was the first book that we worked through together. And I went back and I read those notes and surely I cringed. I was like, how did they listen to me say some of these things? I was like, this is the most clunky seemingly disorganized thing I've ever seen in my life. You have been patient with me. And what a great gift that is to me. My guess is you're still patient with me. You're still hoping I come along at some point. But there's no guarantee, all right? (laughs) You keep praying for patience. I'll keep giving you a reason to be patient, all right? But patience is a great gift that we give to others. Love does that, and love is also kind. It's not harsh or severe. In relationships in the church, kindness stands ready to forgive. Kindness, actually, it doesn't make you a doormat. Kindness makes you like the Lord Himself. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And I love this paraphrase of it. The Lord is kind and merciful, patient and full of love. It's interesting, isn't it? Patience and kindness are two things that we truly appreciate receiving and two things we really struggle giving. And yet Paul says love is patient and kind. At the same time, love is not self-promoting. That's what this run of Uh, descriptives in the rest of verse 4 and verse 5 show us. Love does not envy or boast. In fact, in, in, in the original language, not is before every single one of these. Okay? So, love is not envious, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not self seeking, not irritable, not resentful. The knots have it. This is what love is not. It's not envious. Love doesn't prefer that you lose something in order that I might gain something. Love isn't boastful. Love doesn't brag on its own achievements or tear down yours so that I look better. Love is not arrogant. This puffed up sense of superiority. It's not love. Love is not rude. So love isn't disrespectful or disgraceful. Love doesn't break into conversations or decisions. Love love isn't one that inserts itself or asserts itself in that kind of way. Love is not self-seeking. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love love doesn't say, um, my way is the best way. In fact, it's the only way. Love isn't irritable. Do you want to know how to love your friend better? Don't be so easily angered by him. Love isn't easily provoked. Love doesn't let things get under the skin like that, honestly. Love Love isn't irritable. Love isn't resentful. 
That's the last one. Uh, the, the language there it actually means to, to keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't pull out a notebook every time you do something wrong, every time you say something wrong and jot it down. And then every time I see you after that, in my mind, I pull out that notebook and I run through all that you have ever done to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, you asked me to forgive you, but remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? Remember when you did the other? You are always that way. Love doesn't do that, folks. That is not what love is. Let me just tell you, if you have some kind of long-standing grudge against another person in your congregation, you do not love them. And you must love them. And I must love them. So that's what love is. It is patient and kind. It is not self-promoting. And then what love does. What love does. Love rejoices in what's right. Verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, the word wrongdoing there is just the plain old regular word for unrighteousness. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. This is one place where biblical love collides with our culture's idea of love, isn't it? Because in our culture, we are expected to believe that love overlooks unrighteousness, ignores it. Love sets aside my convictions to celebrate your choices even when they violate God's Word. In fact, the world would have us believe that love doesn't even use a word like unrighteous. You see, in the world's eyes, love leaves morality to the individual. But dear friend, that is not God's love. God's love does not ignore unrighteousness, nor does it celebrate unrighteousness. But you say, now wait a second. Um, Doesn't God's love say to us... um, Come as you are. Yes, and that's a glorious thing, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? God's not expecting you to clean up your act before you come to Him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? Otherwise, you'd never come. You can't get yourself clean enough. There's not a metal brush strong enough to scrub all that stuff out of your soul. But while He says, come as you are, He also says, the way that you are will destroy you. And I don't want you to be destroyed. And so you cannot stay the way that you are. You must change, and I will change you because I love you. God's love doesn't ignore unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. Isn't that interesting? Paul puts side by side by side by side, unrighteousness and truth. So this isn't some grand idea of what truth is in some philosophical sense. He means love does not rejoice in living unrighteously. Love rejoices in living according to the truth. That's the best way to understand it. Love rejoices when it sees obedience to the truth. Love rejoices when it sees repentance coming back to the truth. 
Love rejoices when it sees growth in truth. John wrote, I have no greater joy than than to hear that my children are walking according to the truth. Love rejoices in what's right. And also love believes and hopes all things. These two things are very similar, so we're going to take them together. Look at verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So believes and hopes. Love isn't cynical. Love isn't suspicious. Love doesn't assume that you're lying to me. Love doesn't assume that you're trying to pull one over on me. Love believes the best about the other. It gives the other the benefit of the doubt. And love hopes all things. It's hopeful. Love knows that God's grace can turn any life around. Love doesn't even know the word hopeless. Isn't that great? Love knows that your story isn't over yet. And the God who holds the pen will write the same ending for every true Christian. And they lived happily ever after in a world made new and in perfect fellowship with God and with one another. Every true Christian story ends that way. And love knows it. Love is hopeful. The last thing we see that love does is bears and endures all things. These bookends in verse 7. Love bears all things and then the last one endures all things. Friend, love stays when others go. Love keeps fighting for you rather than against you. When the world would say, give up, love endures. Now, aren't you thankful that God's love toward you bears all things and believes all things? Or endures all things, bears all things and endures all things? I am. I mean, when I think about myself, when I think of how slow I am to learn how slow I am to change. If I were in charge of the project of me, I would have washed my hands of me years ago. But God doesn't wash His hands of us. He never throws in the towel. He never even picks it up. He doesn't even bring it to the boxing ring. That's for other things. God endures. God bears. And that love should mark the church. That love should mark this church. What should love do in this church? Rejoice in what's right. Believe and hope all things. Bear and endure all things. And here's the deal. The reason why Paul brings this up is because none of this is happening in Corinth. This is the love that's been absent. Okay? Love is patient and kind, not irritable or keeping record of wrongs. But what are they doing? They're taking one another to court. Love doesn't envy. But according to chapter 3, verse 3, jealousy abounds in Corinth. Love doesn't boast. But they're boasting about, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. 
Love isn't arrogant. But Paul told them they're arrogant in chapter 5 in this whole matter of sexual immorality. They're so arrogant about their tolerance of it. Love isn't rude, but some of them are looking at others and saying, I have no need of you. Love isn't self-seeking. But Paul's already told them to cut that out back in chapter 10, verse 24. This love is absent in Corinth. It's nowhere to be found. It's the difference between when you're talking to a young child and you tell them all of the things that they've done wrong, right? Well, you, like if you're a teacher, you didn't put your name on the paper, you didn't finish this sentence with a period, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you didn't do that, you didn't do that. That's one way to go about it, right? The other way is to say, hey, when you turn in a paper, the name goes on it. Sentences end in periods. Tennessee is capitalized. And if you really love it, all the letters are capitalized. <laughs> you see the difference? One points out all that's wrong, and one says, this is the right way to do it. And that's the kind of rebuke that Paul is giving. He is rebuking them by saying, this is what love is. Now, you've read everything that I've said up until now. This should land with deep conviction. But what about us? Is love absent here? Is love absent in your life? Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, to love one another. Are we? Are we loving this way with all of those people? Not just the people. Look, Jesus said if you love those who love you, that's no benefit to you. If the only kind of love you have for others are for the people who you feel like love you, well, that's no different than the world, is it? I think it would be good for all of us to sit down with verses 4 to 7 at some point today and probably repeatedly and just take the list one at a time and ask, Lord, am I this? Am I this? To evaluate our relationships, our friendships, with, uh, our, 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 with relationships with coworkers or neighbors, with our spouse, with our children, with our parents, with fellow Christians. Am I this? You see, these verses are actually a good preparation tool and a good evaluation tool. So here's a suggestion. All of us probably know some environment in life in which we have struggled to love others well. Whether it is at work, or an HOA meeting, or whether it's in a staff meeting, or whether it's at a family reunion, or you're looking forward to vacation with your in-laws this summer, or it's maybe just someone that you know you're going to see who has treated you poorly. Whatever it is, in order to prepare your soul for that, why not take out these verses and read them slowly and meditate on them and ask the Lord to make you this in that moment for that vacation, for that meeting, for that interaction? It's a good preparation tool. It's also a good 
evaluation tool. Sometimes in relationships, whether it's friendships or a marriage or with your parents or whatever, things can just seem off and you can't quite put your finger on it. Can't quite put your finger on what's off in this relationship. Something's going on. Now let me tell you the easy thing to do. The easy thing to do is to pull out the friend's life or your spouse's life or your co-worker's life and begin to examine it. But what Jesus tells us to do is start with the mirror, that we ought to inspect ourselves first. So if, some, if maybe there's a relationship in your life that feels off. You know what might be helpful? Take out these verses and walk through them slowly, meditate on them, and ask the Lord to help you discover how you are contributing to the relationship being off. Oh, the, the offness may have started with that other person, but am I actually loving them? Have I, have I stopped doing these loving things because they've treated me that way? Am I not fostering love because I'm not loving them well? Because there's only one person in the relationship that you can actually evaluate with any kind of clarity, and that's really yourself. It's a good evaluation tool. You see, of all the things that Christians may do in life, we must love. You're called to your home as a stay-at-home mom, you must love. You're set down as an engineer in that firm, you must love. You are making drawings or driving a truck or uh, cleaning homes or doing all manner of things. What you must do is love. What you must do. You may do many things, but what you must do is love. The last reason why we must be committed, not only because it is crucial for the church, not only because it's absent in the church, but because it is the greatest gift to the church. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I, became like a man, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, everything that the Corinthians treasure, all of the spiritual gifts, everything that leads to the spotlight, everything that leads to calling an individual great, all of those things will pass away. They are good. They are from God. They build up the church. They are useful, but they are not everything. They're partial. They're temporary. But love Love never fails. Love never falls down. Love will never pass away. Love will never cease. That makes it the greatest, doesn't it? And actually, he says, that'll be most clear when the perfect comes. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns. 
Everything that you're missing, Corinthians, about the temporary nature of these gifts, it'll all be clear on that day. People want to argue about what this means and when all these things cease. Let me tell you when it'll be most clear to all of us. When Jesus returns. A good friend says that uh, all these millennial positions, you know if you understand that language, um, he says he's a pan-millennialist because he believes everything will pan out in the end. And that is true. And that's when it will be most clear that all of these things that we revere, that we regard, the celebrity culture that is among us today, this whole celebrity preacher culture, this idea that some gifts need to be exalted, uh, all of those things, it's temporary. It's not just temporary because Jesus will return. It's temporary because the people who exert those gifts will die. And their gifts will go with them. And if all of our hope is in all the giftedness of people, if all of the hope of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City was grounded in the giftedness of Tim Keller, where would their hope be today? It'd be gone, wouldn't it? But he says, look, here's what's going to happen. Full maturity will blossom. He gives this illustration of a child becoming an adult. A child grows up and takes on adulthood. No one in life is supposed to be Peter Pan. Nobody. We grow up. Childhood is meant to be temporary, just like these gifts. And it'll blossom when the perfect appears. Our spiritual sight will be clear. Notice what he says in uh, verse 12. We see in a mirror dimly. It's blurry. It's vague. We see, certainly, but we don't see everything, and we don't see everything clearly. We, we see a thousand-piece puzzle on the table. Some of them are somewhat put together, uh, but we have no picture to put them together. All we have are the pieces, right? This is what we have. We don't see it all. One day the puzzle will be completely together, and we'll know as we have been known. And what a day that will be. But actually... His goal in saying what a day that will be is to say this is not that day. So we need to be content with the dimness and the partialness and trust the one who knows all things. And this one who knows all things says that for this day, here is what you must know. Verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. That means they remain. They stick around. They are there. Faith, hope, and love. And, and even among those, the greatest of those is love. Love is the greatest gift in the church. It stands out above all things. And so Christians must be committed to love in the church. Now, if you're like me and you have worked through this with me, then as you hear all of these things, it's possible that your head keeps sinking lower and lower and lower because you see this portrait of what my life should be. And my life is not this. 
you may have heard more ways that you fail rather than succeed in all of those things. And so the weight of conviction gets heavier as you look at this text and as you look at your life. But there's one more place I want you to look, and that's to the cross. Because there on the cross is the one who embodied all of this perfectly. Jesus is patient. Think about how many times His disciples didn't get it. They failed to understand Him. They failed to understand His mission. And yet He sticks with them. Jesus is kind. He feeds the 5,000. He heals sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. Jesus isn't envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Philippians 2 says, even though He's equal to God, He doesn't count that equality something to hang on to or something to brag about. Jesus doesn't insist on His own way. He prays, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus isn't irritable. The only thing that provokes Him to anger is the thing that provokes the Father to anger, and that's when God's purposes and God's glory are being opposed. Jesus doesn't rejoice at unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. You hang on to that because your friends who are not believers will tell you, oh, Jesus rejoices in this because He loves me. But Jesus doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. When the Pharisees twist the Bible to their own ends, Jesus doesn't rejoice. The woman who's caught in adultery, what does He say to her? Does He say, I'm so glad that I saved you from that stoning. Just go about your business. No, 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 no. He says, go and sin no more. And Jesus isn't resentful. There He is on the cross, not keeping a record of wrongs, but taking our record of wrongs upon Himself so that by His death He erases our record of wrongs. No wonder Paul says God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's looking to that Savior on that cross, it's that look that I told my friend Brad he needed to make. I told him, that he needs to look at the death of Jesus because in the death of Jesus, he will find the gold standard of love. All other loves are measured by that love. And I told him what I will tell you, which is that you can know that love, have that love, never be separated from that love if you will come to the Lord Jesus in faith. And Christian, if your head hangs low today because you know you're loveless, the Lord Jesus will lift your head. He will forgive you. And His Spirit will change you bit by bit so that more and more you'll do what Paul commands in the very next two words of this letter. Pursue love. Pursue love. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you would give us strength to comprehend the depth and width and height and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. We hear all that love is, 
and we know what we are not. And we are thankful that in Christ you do not keep a record of those wrongs, but you have forgiven them in His blood. And so we pray that you will help us not only to look to Him to find the forgiveness we need, but to be strengthened by His Spirit that we might pursue love. We pray in the name of Jesus, the lover of our soul. Amen. Amen. If you would, stand with me, and we are going to sing one song and then...